0: You're listening to the Ayn Rand Institute live podcast series, building the builder's mindset, psychological lessons from working with entrepreneurs by Gina Gorlin.
1: Thank you everyone. I like a friendly audience. We're off to a good start. Okay. So I want to start by saying that this is not a talk about the psychology of entrepreneurs. It's about the psychology of human beings. Who want to live their fullest happiest lives as dramatized by a particular kind of human being who's trying to do that on a particularly grand and psychologically revealing scale. just to illustrate what I mean, so this is how Ben Horowitz, who is himself a serial entrepreneur, captures the entrepreneur's struggle, you know which he puts with a capital S, the struggle. Um, In his book, which itself is called The Hard Thing About Hard Things, according to Horowitz, this struggle is universal among great founders, and it is unsparing. Just to quote a few tidbits, it's where self-doubt becomes self-hatred. It's when you want the pain to stop. It's the land of broken promises and crushed dreams. It's where your guts boil so much that you feel like you're going to spit blood, and so on. And he goes on to explain, it's where greatness comes from. Now, I'm not sure I fully agree with Horwitz on this last point. The struggle, no, I wouldn't say it's literally where greatness comes from. and I don't know if it's strictly necessary for every founder to experience it in quite the intense dramatic form he describes here. But he's absolutely right that most of them do, and that it's not for nothing that most successful entrepreneurs, and I'm talking about the successful ones, the ones who made it, have failed at least a few times in big, painful, dramatic ways. Most of them have mishandled at least a few important relationships with co-founders, with colleagues, in ways that have led to big conflicts and schisms that have affected a lot of people, and some of which may never get resolved. Most of them have gotten turned down by countless investors who told them that their ideas were hot air, that they didn't make sense, that you know they would never take off. And most of them have had to tell other investors that they've spent all their money and have nothing to show for it. None of these challenges are, in fact, unique to founders, to entrepreneurs. Anyone trying to build anything worthwhile and trying to do it in a really intentional, purposeful, conscious way, be it an artistic skill, a functional exercise routine, which I can you know, talk about the difficulties of actually making that one happen, right? Or a healthy, loving relationship with a spouse or with a child or a joyful living space, you know, without all the clutter that's piled up. All of these building projects, if you will, face the same sorts of challenges, right? You have to make choices about whether and how to even proceed given all the other tasks on your list, right? You have to take purposeful action, often in the face of risk, uncertainty, Disagreement, right conflicting voices in your life that tell you that you know your time would be better spent elsewhere and the inevitability of at least some failures and setbacks somewhere along the way of disappointments of getting attached to an outcome and then having it not materialize right And we all have to face some of the social and emotional resistance that is inevitable anytime we try to make a change, right Do something in a different way than we're used to a different way than you know, that those around us are used to. Okay, and we all need the same fundamental psychological and moral resources to deal effectively with these various kind of universal challenges and to grow through them rather than to stagnate uh, in the face of these challenges. But the consequences of leveraging these resources or failing, of growing versus stagnating, are starker in the context of an entrepreneurial venture where the stakes are visibly high. And many of the conventional safety nets, the sort of seeming safety nets that we experience in our jobs, in our relationships, in our daily lives, have been stripped away. Now, when I read uh, Ben Horowitz's account of the struggle, you may have had the thought, well, okay, these entrepreneurs that Horowitz is talking about, maybe they wouldn't struggle so much if they had the right philosophy. Maybe they wouldn't have to go through all of this, all this inner conflict and pain and crisis and, you know, and self doubt if they had objectivism at their disposal. But part of my, part, one of the big lessons of my work uh, has been that that's at best, that's part of the answer, but it can't be the whole answer. In fact, some of the objectivist entrepreneurs that I've worked with have struggled as much or more with some of these very challenges. In some cases, they've been more vulnerable some of them. So, by no means does having objectivism and endorsing it, embracing it, studying it make us immune or kind of solve the problem for us in any sense that's sort of like automatic and self contained. Okay. Objectivism, as you'll see me reference repeatedly in this talk, it's a tremendous resource for building yourself into a builder, which is our project here today. But Building anything worthwhile takes considerable specialized knowledge and skill. And it turns out that building objectivism into our psychology is no exception. Part of what objectivism teaches us, you know, as you probably know, is that building, creating value through the chosen purposeful application of reason is our distinctly human mode of survival. Whether we're entrepreneurs or whether we're working a nine to five job, whether we're students, you know, whatever we're doing with our lives. We have to build and it's not our default. We're not just innately programmed to build. Building is never and often very saliently not the path of least resistance, right? It's a volitional capacity that needs to be exercised and cultivated by choice over time. One personal benefit that I've reaped from working with all these entrepreneurs that I've worked with the last couple of years, years Increasingly, I realize it's a big part of my motivation for doing this work is so that they inspire me to be more entrepreneurial in the broad sense of the term, in all of my kind of personal and professional endeavors. In the broad sense of the term, in fact, you know, ironically, in at least a few cases, adopting that builder's mindset, kind of thinking more entrepreneurially about my life, has helped me decide against starting an entrepreneurial venture in the narrower sense of the term because I was able to really do the kind of personal, individual you know, cost benefit analysis and kind of really think about the risk calculus and think about the life that I'm building and where it would fit as a whole. And it just, it wasn't a great fit, at least at that time. I'll get back to you if it ever does become, if I ever get enticed. But the goal here is for us to learn, both learn from the struggles and from the triumphs and from the virtues that entrepreneurs cultivate in the course of the amazing ambitious things that they're building so that then we can take those lessons and we can build wholly lived and fully chosen lives of our own. Okay, So that's my goal today. I want to share some of the lessons I've learned from being in the trenches with these ambitious founders and see what they can teach us all about living and building our own fully lived lives. Okay, so I want to start by telling you a couple stories. These are fictionalized accounts of, so they're sort of amalgamations of a bunch of real founders I've worked with, but kind of worked into an example that is itself fictional. So you won't recognize any particular person in either of these examples. And the goal of these examples, sort of as you're listening to them, is to illustrate what I have found to be one of the most common patterns among not just founders, but really ambitious people that I've worked with, uh, where we tend to oscillate between sort of two seemingly opposite approaches to dealing with the struggles, to dealing with the stresses and sort of the setbacks inherent in building something ambitious. Okay, I'm gonna kind of see if I can exemplify each approach in the form of these two people, even though in fact, almost nobody I know falls neatly on one or the other uh, side of this duality. So kind of keeping that in mind, see if you see yourself, see if any of what I describe about either of these two individuals sort of resonates with you. Okay, so our first fictionalized founder is Elaine. This is Elaine. Elaine is a young, Immigrant scientist from an embattled, economically struggling East European country who comes to the US to attend an Ivy League PhD program in biochemistry. Despite a really promising start, she ends up kind of languishing for the last couple of years of her degree, given the dearth of mentorship or financial support for her admittedly audacious ideas. But she sticks it out, sort of grinding her way through mind numbing projects um, that are relatively safe, you know, that her advisor can support. Because quitting prematurely would be a failure. It would mean, you know, that she had fallen short of kind of the standards she had set for herself and, you know, struggling through adversity and kind of clawing her way, you know, to the States, to this really prestigious program. You know, she needed to finish what she started. (laughs) Excuse me. And now, despite strong cultural parental pressure to get a proper academic job, she takes the leap to try and build a biotech startup because she can see how this may actually be the quickest path to testing out her extremely ambitious idea for, in effect, eradicating the common cold. Sounds pretty enticing right about now. Um, And uh, so she finds a co-founder. Her idea is thought out, it's interesting, you know, it involves sort of combining current gene sequencing and machine learning technologies in a way that can actually kind of proactively detect and classify a bunch of different variants of, you know, rhinovirus and these various cold causing viruses. Um, And so she attracts a co-founder who is an experienced computer engineer and serial founder, well-connected in Silicon Valley and acts like it. Um, And from the outset, Elaine is beset with constant self-doubt, feeling constantly out of her depth and like a hopeless imposter. The problem that she's trying to solve quickly turns out to be much more complicated than she had really even fathomed in terms of the necessary equipment and the technical expertise needed to run the needed experiments on her own outside of an academic university environment, the regulatory and legal hurdles, the list goes on and on. She's worrying constantly that she's gonna disappoint her co-founder by not being knowledgeable enough, not being technically proficient enough. So instead of asking questions that might make her sound dumb, even when they're questions he might know the answers to, she spends hours combing through online tutorials, trying to fill in the gaps in her coding knowledge, sometimes at the cost of actual progress on the experiments she needs to be running. And though she does get some promising early signals, suggesting she might be on the right track with her idea, these baby studs don't feel anywhere big enough or definitive enough to her. So she pushes herself to work nonstop, you know, long hours in the lab, day and night, until she's bleary-eyed, and still there are equipment malfunctions, the experiments just don't turn out the way they're supposed to. Things just keep going wrong. All of which she beats herself up about, drill sergeant style, telling herself things like, you know what, maybe mom and dad were right. You're just a stubborn, deluded child who just should own up to her ineptitude and just you know, go get a proper postdoc. Or, you know, you're such a careless idiot, whatever made you think you could pull this off, et cetera. She compares her own progress to that of other biotech founders that she admires and she reams herself for not being as far along as she's supposed to be. She still doesn't have a working prototype six months in they still haven't managed to raise a successful round of funds you know, one year in and look at all these other companies that they were so much farther along by this point. And to top it off, most of the investors they approach really are quite skeptical of the idea. Some even suggest maybe de-risking it by tackling a smaller problem first. Like instead of trying to eradicate all the major variants of the common goal, maybe just start with one just to show us you know, that you, know, you, can really, you can get something done and, and then go from there. Now she knows this would be a huge shift away from the original idea and from really from what excited her about the idea from this kind of ambitious you know detection classification method um, that was the whole reason she wanted to work on it, it would kind of switch from being a challenge of scientific vision to being mainly one of implementation. Her co-founder is bullish on the idea though. he was never quite as you know attached to her particular uh, iteration of the idea as she was. she just sort of he wants to work with her because she seems like a really you know, fresh thinker, smart, plucky, and he wanted to try something different. And she doesn't want to lose his support, doesn't think she could find another co-founder like him. So here she is trapped again in the same hellish uh, kind of trade-offs that she found herself in in grad school. She's caught between kind of compromising her ideals and giving up on this audacious vision, working on something boring, but at least you know, kind of practical, reliable on the one hand, or kind of risking the loss of everything, ending up purposeless, broke, you know, a disappointment to herself and everyone else in her life, except this time she would be over 30, you know, instead of in her mid 20s as she would have been in grad school. And meanwhile, she's lonely, she's so consumed with the work that she doesn't really prioritize dating or making friends you know, in her new city. And so she doesn't really have anyone to kind of put all of this in perspective for her. She's really in a rut, okay. So we're going to leave her for a moment. Uh, I know we're all feeling for her and in suspense as to where this is all going to go. But I want to tell you now about Adam for contrast. So Adam is the son of kind, nurturing parents who he knows will always have his back. He's always been a nerdy, studious guy. He was pretty severely bullied in school, as many of us nerdy studious you know, kids unfortunately have been, uh, until his parents sort of realized this and took him out of public school and put him in a much more autonomy-supportive, individualized uh, private school where he really thrived. Uh, Fast forwarding a bit, he recently quit his first software developer job out of college, which felt really stifling to him, and decided to found a company that combines his passion for cooking and uh, for cutting-edge software design. So he recruits a couple friends from his old school who he knows are really smart and share at least one of these interests. And together they embark on a project of creating a curated in-home dining service where people can customize their recipes and have all the necessary ingredients delivered to their door. So Adam and his team eagerly get to work building the software platform. Let's call it iChef for the sake of the example. I'm making this up, although it turns out there is such a company, but it's totally different. This is the fictional version. Okay. Populating it with the best recipes they can find. They add lots of really neat features, you know, to their uh, MVP, their kind of first uh, prototype and put, you know, their heart and soul into it. And they start shopping it around to friends and family members and colleagues, you know, from prior jobs. Some of whom get really excited and really are satisfied early customers. They rave about just the quality of the ingredients and helpfulness you know, of the instructions and just getting to enjoy the fun parts of cooking without all the hassle. So really exciting to hear some of the kind of you know, validation that sort of fits with their own love of this product and kind of their own principles for the design. They also find that most people don't keep using the service after having tried it once, even if they raved about it the first time. And also, they have a lot of trouble even attracting first time customers who didn't already have some prior relationship with them. But they're not letting themselves get disheartened by these early mixed signals, reminding themselves that like, startups are inherently uncertain ventures, true enough, and that we can't ultimately control what other people choose to do, right? We can only stay true to our vision and our standards, and even if we fail, this will have been its own reward. On the fundraising front, Adam and his team get some pretty nasty rejections from the investors they approach, some of whom actually seem to think that this is a joke. Um, But as any founders in the room can attest, this is not necessarily a stop signal in itself. Um, So they don't let these mocking reactions get to them. And eventually they do secure some seed funding from a venture capitalist who is really inspired by their passion and falls in love with iChef when he tries it at home with his family. So now they have some runway to keep plugging away at it. A year into developing iChef, pouring lots of creativity into designing new recipes, developing new product features, they've got a small crop of loyal customers. But it hasn't really grown, and it's not enough even to kind of break even, much less you know, to make a profit. The growth that they keep kind of setting as a goal for themselves just isn't happening. And they keep moving the the bar, kind of adjusting the goalposts on their OKRs, their objectives and key results for the growth of the company. Got some founders chuckling, perhaps. Um, Adam and his team, meanwhile, invest a lot of time and energy in learning some of the kind of current state-of-the-art tools available in Silicon Valley for kind of maintaining Composure, maintaining your mental health, you know, your work-life balance as a founder. They learn and practice meditation. They read a lot of self-help books. Maybe they even employ a coach or therapist for the company, you know, who kind of works individually and as a team uh, with the founders so that they can keep working on iChef without letting it kind of affect their own day-to-day emotional well-being too much. After a couple of years they find themselves running out of money and Adam's team members start leaving the company in search of more stable opportunities, particularly given the volatile economy, which I know we can all relate to right now, leaving him scrambling to find new hires, uh, which is not really how he envisioned the work you know, when he started on this route. And now he's starting to feel increasingly anxious in spite of himself about the future of the company and of his own career. Okay, so that's Adam. So. What do we make of our two founders and these different approaches that they've taken? You know, I think it's important to mention here that both of these founders are genuinely admirable and impressive in a lot of ways, right? I hope that you're impressed with them and with a lot of the things that they've already accomplished and you know, a lot of kind of the skill and wisdom and resources that they have leveraged up to this point in their careers. We could even say that they're both familiar with Rand and objectivism and that they've been studying the philosophy. As I said, you know, many of the founders I've worked with either have or, or for all I know very well could have. Um, yet neither of them is fully happy or fulfilled in their entrepreneurial journey, despite these very different and seemingly opposite approaches that they've employed for kind of managing its stresses. Why not? And is there some other approach that they both could be taking? Uh, this is what I want us to, grapple with now. So uh, with apologies for the shameless uh, further commercialization of my two-year-old, because it's just too convenient a pose that she struck here to illustrate uh, the point, we have conflicting mindsets that sometimes exist within us all at once. So. Philosophy does, in fact, as you might guess, have everything to do with kind of what these founders are struggling with, but in subtler ways than we might initially expect. There are mistaken philosophical premises at play, but often those aren't the premises that the founder themselves would endorse explicitly today if they ever did, okay? And they're hard to even get to the root of what those premises are, and I'm gonna give you my attempt at that today but you might start thinking, like, what are the assumptions uh, that are kind of driving each of these approaches? What assumptions am I making when I find myself talking in one of these ways to myself? Okay. The assumptions that I'm going to argue for, that I'm going to see if we can kind of get to together, they're implicit in the flavor of a person's emotional reactions, in the style and the method of their thinking and their self-talk, their communication and their default action habits, default motivations and so on all of which together add up to what I've come to refer to as mindsets, okay? By mindset, I mean an internalized perspective on life, an implicit metaphysics, if you will, of which crucially we can have multiple ones activated at the same time or in sequence, okay? We can believe one thing most of the time, but then kind of have another perspective, another mindset operative in certain situations or kind of when triggered uh, into certain sort of modes or contexts or we can literally have them operative simultaneously. One of more explicitly, one more implicitly, or they could both be implicit or both be explicit. And really any mix of these is possible. So that makes it a very confusing kind of psychological detection job to figure out like what is the mix of perspectives that's pushing me around here and what do I actually think about them all? And how do I ultimately want to proceed if I you know, were to be able to really kind of hear all the internal, kind of, you know, the members of my internal peanut gallery, if I could actually differentiate what they're all telling me and what is it all based on, and thereby kind of make informed decisions in that light. Okay, so that's sort of the challenge before us. So what are the conflicting mindsets that are showing up for Elaine and Adam, respectively? In real life, I wouldn't task anyone with diagnosing their mindsets just based on what I've told you. You know I'd want more information and I'd be asking a lot more questions but for our purposes since I made them up I'm gonna kind of impose my divine uh, narrative here and tell you what I think might be going on with each of them given some of the common patterns I've observed and real founders like that okay so Lane she clearly she yearns to build she has elements of the builder in her soul right but these elements are tied up with a whole lot of what I've come to call the drill sergeant's mindset. So the drill sergeant is my shorthand for that inner voice of reproach and judgment that motivates us primarily through threat and shaming, directed at ourselves primarily, sometimes at others, mostly at ourselves. You know, the voice that says, get back to work, you lazy idiot, right? Why aren't you more productive? Why aren't you more rational? What is wrong with you? Get off your butt. Um, get it done. Uh, The main function of the drill sergeant seems to be kind of keep us in line with whatever difficult and demanding goals we've set for ourselves, but with little regard for what actually makes those goals valuable to us in the first place, or what it would actually realistically take to enact them. So Elaine has a genuine vision and ambition that's grounded in her first-handed understanding of this, of the field, you know, of biochemistry and of the problem, but she knows very little about the specific path that would get her from here to there, or how to measure her progress along the way. Now, that's a normal state of affairs when embarking into uncharted waters, right? As most founders are, but she's not used to uncharted waters, right? Up to this point, she has been navigating very well-charted territory. The, you know, charted territory of academia and of the kind of East European uh, authoritarian mindset, which I know I am very familiar with myself, okay? And the relative ambiguity and unstructuredness of the startup world is just, it's killing her. Even though it's a lot of what she was excited about in the first place when she made the jump. So on some level, she associates excellence achievement with the rote execution of certain conventionally defined, easily quantifiable performance standards, which her upbringing and education supplied plenty of, right? Ace your exams. Get into that Ivy League, you know, U.S. university, thereby also hopefully buying your ticket out of poverty and oppression. Get your PhD, get published in high-impact journals. Excuse me, I really wish she would get on with her work because I'd really use her solution right now. Okay, so, and some of these may have been legitimate values-based goals for her, right? I mean, who wouldn't want to buy their way out of the oppression and the misery Right? Uh, and the, the, uh, just the privation of you know, an embattled um, developing country. But even with those kinds of goals, you know, she embraced them, she adopted them, and they became kind of straitjackets jackets for her as sort of duties detached from particular needs or values uh, that, she, that, that she had a real conception of. They became more like burdensome thou shouts uh, rather than freely chosen, you know, take what you want and pay for it, if you will. And the fear of proving unworthy is constantly pulling her to try to appease these quasi-arbitrary standards uh, at the cost sometimes of really forming and maintaining a robust action-oriented mental model of like what does she actually want to build and what is it going to take to build it interestingly she even holds her first-handed vision of you know creating this really ambitious and potentially world-changing solution to a very real pervasive human problem she kind of holds it as this somewhat in this kind of rigid intrinsic form having assumed a priori that since this is her grand ambition that is the boldest most courageous path that she could be taking that almost you know by definition having now kind of slotted itself into that place in her head it's become this kind of unquestionable absolute dictate that this is what she needs to be doing or else she's a sellout to herself and it's sort of Forbidding her from even considering what, whether there might be alternative paths, perhaps even like taking a postdoc—perish the thought, right? Or working on one of the safer, kind of you know more conventional-sounding uh, versions of her startup idea that maybe would actually better position her to kind of develop the skills and you know, to kind of fill in some of the, the steps, fill in some of the gaps to getting to some of the more ambitious kind of visioning. Uh, longer term? Maybe not, but maybe. And she's not even kind of letting herself ask that question. Okay? And just as she assumes a kind of automatic infallible access to the right outcomes and the right standards to be judging herself against, she also expects her knowledge of the discipline and the best practices within it to be automatic and infallible to the point where she beats herself up anytime she falls short of that standard. And she doesn't let herself do some of the work of figuring it out. Right, of asking the questions. She feels ashamed that she would need to ask. And so she kind of keeps those questions to herself. Okay. And I just want to notice also, before we kind of move on to Adam and his mindset, we just notice kind of the attitude toward work here, that there's this kind of sense of the drudgery of having to kind of slog through meeting these conventional and kind of intrinsic criteria for success and excellence, that then will free you to eventually be able to do the really creative and ambitious stuff, which you do somehow. But not this way, not the slog. It can't be the slog. It can't be this kind of rote, mundane. You know, show up to the lab every day and and kind of tinker with tools and figure things out on Google. Like it, it's got to, it's got to have some sort of a kind of grandeur and spontaneity to it in her mind. And she's not necessarily appreciating that doing something this hard is going to take more discipline, more of the kind of rigorous you know, learning and kind of iterating on, on outcomes, then the conventional stuff for which a lot of that has already kind of been figured out for you, a lot of the, the kind of step-by-step structures and sequences, you know, someone else has already done the work to operationalize. So she associates all the challenging work with kind of self-denial and martyrdom, rather than seeing it potentially as tied to the valued goals she's pursuing. And just to give an example, you know, maybe in one case, she needs to shop around for some of the different kind of sources of the lab do hickeys that she needs in order to be able to kind of run her experiments. And she kind of assumes from the outset that there's kind of the one firm, the one that you know all her advisors in grad school uh, contracted with, that that's the place where you get your do hickeys. And it sort of doesn't occur to her to maybe Google around and see if there are other companies that might provide them more cheaply or more efficiently and perhaps you know, there might even be some advantage to manufacturing them in-house, You know, kind of like when Elon Musk looked into the price of rockets and realized that this, they shouldn't have to cost nearly as much and decided to found a company that would build the rockets you know, from scratch. These, by the way, are just the kinds of ideas that might occur to her co-founder if she asked him, but she's afraid to ask because she thinks she's supposed to know all the answers already. Okay? So, so this is her pattern, and this is... Uh, the way of the drill sergeant uh, that I just want us to, again, be kind of reflecting and seeing if any of this resonates for us. So what about Adam? What's going on with him? So Adam embraces an approach that is widely regarded in Silicon Valley circles as the antidote to the ruthless, soul-crushing perfectionism of the drill sergeant. He practices what I've come to call the way of the Zen master. This mindset counsels against getting too attached to the success or failure of any given outcome. After all, you can't directly control uh, success or failure, much less when it involves the the preferences and proclivities of other people, uh, such as your customers. And so if you want to minimize stress and maximize your emotional resilience, it's best to focus on what you can control. Like your awareness of the present moment, your effort, your attitude, et cetera. This might sound very reasonable on its face. It's sort of like the serenity prayer that Rand cites herself, right? That you want to focus on the things that you can control and have the serenity to recognize what you can't control and the wisdom to accept uh, or wisdom to know the difference, right? Until we actually really think about what is a builder's, what is the nature of a builder's ownership? over what they're trying to build. Oops, I'm giving too much away here prematurely. Don't don't look at that yet. (laughs) Okay, so just to take an analogy where I think it's sort of immediately obvious, imagine a literal builder, an architect like Howard Dork, is commissioned to design a house that happens to be on the Southern California coast. And imagine he says to himself, well, look, I can't control whether this house stands or falls in the event of Uh, you know, unforeseen weather disaster, such as say an earthquake. And so instead I'll just focus on the process. I'll focus on, you know, just making it beautiful and building by the kind of methodology that I find to be excellent. Nobody would hire that architect if they knew he thinks that way. It would just be just absurd on its face because you've got all the information you need to know that this is a foreseeable, a common, risk right, in the area where you're building. And there are tools that you could easily learn about and that you, know, you could find out how to kind of reinforce the foundations of the house that you're building in order to be able to withstand earthquakes in the not so arbitrary you know, possibility, the eventuality that, uh, that that externality comes to pass. Right? It's, it would be crazy to say like, no, oh, well, that's out of your control. Right? It's very much within scope for an architect. Now, if, but if we think about what are you building as a founder, what are you building when you take on the task of trying to create a product that people want to buy and thereby you know, creating this sustainable, profitable right, business model that can then fund the kind of continued growth and expansion of your vision right? and sort of add value to the world, among the kinds of risks that you would be managing is the very real common endemic risk, which is almost more the rule than the exception that you're gonna to fail to find product market fit, <laughs> that people just aren't gonna to want to buy the thing that you've built, right? And you would take it upon yourself to check, to be really vigilant about you know, the reality of, well, are people actually, you know, are they coming to us, are they eating it up. Like, do they want more of this product or are we getting subscriptions? Like, and there are in fact some known metrics or at least, you know, a lot of sort of available tools and heuristics out there that you could either just adopt or build upon to help you evaluate whether you're actually getting traction, right? In the market and lots of specific levers of influence that you can pull to adjust. If you don't find that you're getting the kind of traction you want, right? You can change your kind of go to market. You can, change the product, you can pivot in all kinds of ways to, you can change your business strategy to still serve whatever is that fundamental vision, kind of whatever the underlying belief about kind of how the world would be better, you know, with the kind of talent or the kind of uh, value that you bring, but in a way that actually matches the reality of your market, okay? That's the kind of problem that a founder is taking on and hopefully wants to take on. I haven't wanted to, which is why I've decided to not pursue an entrepreneurial venture, right? It's a choice, but that's part of what you're choosing when you take on this kind of project is, yeah, I'm gonna make people's preferences and, and habits and behaviors my responsibility to affect and to evaluate really rigorously. That's in scope for me, right? So on the Zen master mindset, he, what's happening, I think functionally is Adam is emotionally shielding himself and his team from the painful reality that they may actually not be creating the kind of value that they want to create, right? They may not actually be building the thing they want to build in the long term. Rather than face that reality head on, which would probably give them a lot more agency over how they actually deal with it, right? Though this would require kind of leaning into the fact that yeah, it matters to me whether we figure it out whether we get product market fit, right? It, it would mean having to kind of let yourself feel the hurt when you fail and when a given sort of iteration doesn't you know, pan out. And the very real possibility that you ultimately completely fail, which again, great founders have done at least a few times in their journeys. But kind of knowing that and being able to build even that into your model as you build what you're building as part of the overall project of building your life. Okay. So now just to kind of to sum up some of the relevant dimensions on which I think we can compare these mindsets. Because remember, popular wisdom tells us these are opposite approaches to dealing with the stress and pressure of ambitious work. The drill sergeant is all about getting results to hell with how you get there or how you're feeling along the way. Whereas the Zen master is all about the process. It's the journey that matters, not the destination. The drill sergeant is always focused on getting to some future outcome, some future milestone, sometimes also getting you to dwell on your past failures, but not so much on your experience or well-being in the present, right? It's sort of the you can be happy when you're dead uh, mentality, right? Whereas the Zen mindset is very much oriented toward the present moment, toward the now, right? The power of now, the idea that this moment is ultimately all we ever have, and so we should make the most of it, experience it in all of its richness, and so on. The drill sergeant talks to us in a stern, sometimes downright demeaning, very judgmental voice. Whereas the Zen mindset is much more kind, self-compassionate, accepting of you just as you are. The drill sergeant drives you to work with slavish discipline. Right? sometimes to the point of obsessing over every little detail, which for most people results in a kind of uh, boom and bust cycle of pushing ourselves to our limits and then burning out and procrastinating, and then feeling really bad, and then the drill sergeant now you know, just has more grist for his mill of calling us lazy and incompetent, which then kind of gets us back on the wagon for a while, just out of sheer you know, kind of shame, at which point then we fall off again and uh, ad nauseum ad infinitum. Uh, whereas the Zen master just avoids this whole dynamic, right? Uh, he adopts a more content, more free-flowing even borrowing a term from some of the mainstream meditation practices a non-striving approach which doesn't mean that he doesn't that someone on the zen mindset doesn't still work really hard sometimes and really diligently but they do so because they feel inspired by the work itself they're in flow right not because they're desperately trying to prove something to someone or they're trying to get to some prescribed performance measure or outcome okay so i just want to pause here for a moment and get a show of hands How many in the room, if you're willing, you know, and I'll raise my hand for both just from the outset, how many of you sort of resonate with the drill sergeant? Like how many of you have an inner drill sergeant? Okay, very good. I'm glad that there's product market fit uh, for the topic I've chosen today. Okay. How many of you recognize, see yourselves, see any part of your kind of inner dialogue reflected in Adam's uh, Zen master? Okay, that's more or less what I just, sort of a little bit less popular among this group, but but not uh, entirely foreign. Okay, how many of you have kind of noticed both? Good, okay. We have a a self-aware group here today, because really that's much more the rule than the exception in my experience. We oscillate between these approaches. In many ways, the Zen approach is an answer to the drill sergeant, it's sort of the natural, reaction, the natural defense, if you will, against being constantly bullied and yelled at and told what to do, just just get off my back. It doesn't matter, I don't care, right? It's just understandable. And we have all these tools offered and kind of within the culture. And if you're in Silicon Valley, then you're sort of showered with them, right? Resources for doing just that in a more systematic way, kind of detaching and Watching your thoughts, watching your emotions, sort of as they go by, you know, uh, like leaves on the stream. And and a lot of it's really useful and can actually really, you know, improve our well-being, improve and relieve our stress. But potentially with some assumptions baked in that can work against us over time. So what I want to think about now, recalling that these mindsets reflect certain underlying premises, whether we explicitly recognize it or not, I want us to think about what is the ultimate standards or the ultimate conception of the good that motivates each of these mindsets? Like, what is each of them ultimately after? think about that for yourself. Those of you who raised your hand for the drill sergeant, like, what is my ultimate goal? What is the kind of, the, the end all and be all, the end in itself that I'm chasing or that that part of me is chasing you know, when I'm kind of berating myself, when I'm trying to kind of get myself in line. And what about uh, Mr. Zen or Mrs. Zen? Not to discriminate. So in my experience, the drill sergeant mindset seems to motivate us primarily through the promise that we'll prove ourselves worthy by fulfilling whatever duty-like standards we have in our heads as the barometers of our character, our greatness, or, you know, however we hold it which can easily include, you know, are we virtuous objectivists? Are we rational? Are we productive? Are we purposeful? Do we, you know, exemplify the, uh, the, the qualities of an objectivist hero? Okay, whatever they are, we're kind of comparing ourselves against that barometer for the sake of what? There's not much else there. There's not some sort of further, it's not necessarily connected to some reward that we can sort of taste and that we can envision and that we really want to kind of move toward, it's really kind of more about relieving something. It's about kind of relieving the feeling of being a failure. It's like being given the check mark that says we're in the clear. Like, OK, no black marks or whatever color marks on your report card. Right? Because we've fulfilled the duties that we've been tasked to fulfill. And what about the Zen master? What's he after? Oops, there you go. Now, now for the answer key. <laughs> So I think for the Zen master, it comes down, oops, nope, also don't wanna give too, too much away about (laughs) possible alternatives yet. There's no alternative here for all you know. We're stuck with this dichotomy forever. Okay, so for the Zen master, (laughs) I hope not, not too many of you took that seriously. If you did, I'm about to bring you some relief. Ah, I think for the Zen master, the ultimate goal is what the Stoics sometimes referred to as tranquility, what in Buddhism is sometimes referred to as nirvana, but all of which kind of amounts to relief, to the cessation of pain and suffering and stress. kind of Not getting too caught up in the, the trials and tribulations of life, okay? Minimizing stress and pain. We might notice at this point that there are some similarities here, though these mindsets feel so different, they sound so different, they're portrayed as being very different, right? But actually, I think that when we get, when we kind of drill down to the implicit core premises that underlie and give credence to each of these mindsets, we find some important common themes. You know, both mindsets proceed from an assumption that we live in a world where existential success has to be traded off against personal happiness, right? They're just inherently at odds, sort of one or the other, where we have to trade off the present against the future, where we have to trade off the process against the outcome, where we have to trade off the ideal against the real, the mind against the body. And whichever side of the trade-off we land on, we don't really end up having much control over what happens to us kind of the course of our lives, since the form of success we pursue if we choose the drill sergeant's way is basically fixed and uncontestable. It's like, this is the way to be if you want to, you know, to be good and to be virtuous. And on the other side, if we pursue the kinds of experiences that the Zen master counsels, they're gonna be detached from any actual effects that we might exert upon the world, which we're told are out of our hands anyway and don't really matter, or we should try to have them not matter. Okay, so really both of these perspectives are kind of taking some version of this picture of the universe for granted and then they're picking different sides of this false dichotomy by the same token the ultimate standards that motivate our thinking and our actions when we're on each of these mindsets are both kind of fundamentally zero-sum right they're focused on avoiding something unpleasant like moral condemnation that comes from failing to fulfill our duties on the one hand, or the emotional distress of getting too attached to our outcomes on the other hand. Focuses on minimizing negatives rather than pursuing and enjoying positives. Happily, we have an alternative. We have a radical alternative available to us thanks to objectivism. Thanks to the work that Ayn Rand did for us to not only develop a philosophy, but to, concretize it in the form of fictional characters who embody this builder's mindset, this third way that I'm going to you know, sum up in what I'm now calling the builder's mindset, because I think it really captures the way of Rourke, the way of Galt, the way of the heroes who I know have inspired so many of us here, and the way of a lot of the real people who, are, when they're at their best, have made all of our lives better by pursuing their own fully lived lives as an end in itself, as ends in themselves. Okay, so objectivism in practice, it takes the form of this mindset that flows from an internalized conviction, among other things, that we live in a benevolent universe, right? using Rand's words, words that are, that's conducive to our thriving as integrated mind-body agents, that the world is, in effect, raw material for the work of building what we want to build, which partly means that it's knowable and dealable with, right? If we apply our intelligence, our reason, and also that it won't give up its secrets for free or organize itself into houses and airplanes and happy customers and desirable products for us. We need to do the work to understand it and to adapt it to our needs. The ultimate standard worthy of motivating our thinking and our actions on this mindset is our own life lived fully in pursuit and enjoyment of our chosen values in reality, Life isn't a zero sum game of avoiding failure and pain on this view, right? It's a virtuous spiral of building and enjoying what we build. Not a pointless test of our moral metal or a passive retreat from suffering, but a project of active energetic growth and creation in all of its messy fallible beauty. And this project of wholeheartedly throwing ourselves into the creation and the enjoyment of values and reality, this full engagement in kind of the the work of figuring out how to drink our life to the lees of make the most of these precious minutes that we've been given, this is it. This is the ultimate end. And it's a self-sufficient end, right? That doesn't require any prior permission doesn't require anyone's blessing, Rand's or otherwise, or mine, right? Or our parents, anywhere, or your own, right? That's what life is for, that's it. And to really internalize that perspective, it's really hard and it's the most powerful tool, the biggest green light that I think we can hope for if we really want awesome and to build the kind of life that we're capable of building. Okay, so just to put this third way, this third mindset, in context, right, it's not just a middle ground between the Zen and the drill sergeant mindsets, it's a qualitatively different approach to every aspect of our lives. Okay? Just thinking about kind of, well, what does it look like on the ground? What would it look like if we're embodying this mindset in our day to day, right? If, if we look at the various kind of distinctions here between the you know, drill sergeant and the Zen master, rather than distinguish between outcome and process in this way as if they could somehow be considered in isolation from each other, the builder thinks causally about what he wants to build and what it would take to build it, right? So for Elaine, you know, who's beset with the drill sergeant, how, what that, might this mean in practice? This might mean thinking in a fresh and serious way about the nature of the technology and so the the biology that needs to kind of come together if she's to build what she envisions and all the complex steps that she need to take along the way, including you know, skills she needs to learn, people she would need to hire, how she would need to manage those people and divide up the labor among them. And probably she hasn't managed people before other than in a kind of very you know, structured lab context where there are just only a few you know, a few different ways you could direct someone and not very many ways you could go wrong. And so there's a lot to learn there and a lot of kind of discomfort and, you know, growing pains to be faced, right? And think through some of the ways it's gonna go wrong and some of the kind of curveballs that she might expect to slow down or derail the process and plan those and kind of model those into her own custom progress metrics for, okay, well, are, am I actually making you know, taking strides, am I kind of moving in the direction that I wanna be moving? Am I learning the things I need to be learning, right? And that would probably require a lot more customization than simply copying the timelines of existing companies that were doing something different, right? So she would really need to kind of think through, what is this gonna require? And it's really creative intellectual work, right? To to kind of model that in a plausible way. And then of course, it's still a very loose model that's gonna change a bunch of times, but you're accountable to updating it based on what you learn and not just sort of abandoning it willy-nilly because you don't like the lack of progress right, that you're making. So it's also really important as a builder to be honest with ourselves, to be accountable to reality. Okay? And similarly for Adam, if he took this approach of kind of thinking seriously about what he wants to achieve with iChef and what it would take to get there, he might kind of realize in his case the need to be the need for more urgency, actually, right? Given what else he could be doing with his time, given kind of the opportunity cost of continuing to work on a vision that isn't actually bearing the kind of fruit that he wants, okay? So instead of trading off the future against the present, we also see that the builder is lifetime oriented, okay? He thinks in terms of this precious, irreplaceable resource that is his life and like and then he prioritizes accordingly and kind of makes choices and kind of judgments of value accordingly. For Elaine, this might mean kind of rethinking this concern that keeps niggling at her that, you know, she's getting older. And like, how should that concern actually play into her decision-making around whether to pivot or to keep working on the current idea? You know, so thinking like a builder, she might ask herself, like, what am I actually worried about? Am I worried? You know, I really want to be able to build a family, that's really important to me. Is there a scenario with either of these options I'm considering that like, I just run out of time? Like, is that actually a plausible concern? And how big a concern is that? And are there ways I could kind of steer against it? Or is this whole worry actually just a kind of drill sergeant-y concern about failing to meet some arbitrary standard that I'm supposed to have become a visionary or a luminary by 35, which a lot of people have some version of that in their heads. Okay, so, so being lifetime oriented and the urgency of which I spoke, right, for Adam to be able to think, okay, well, I'm in my prime here. These are my kind of prime professional years. Do I want to spend another two, three years plugging away at a product that is almost certainly never going to get picked up at this point, given kind of, you know, the signal? Or do I want to try something different? Do I want to, you know, to pivot to a different market? Or do I want to just, you know, scrap it see if I can sell it and go kind of work as an independent contractor, go pick up other skills that matter to me. Rather than either beating himself up or buttering himself up, the drill sergeant levels with himself, right? And holds himself accountable. Not because he owes it to anyone else, but just because his own valued goals depend on it. So instead of reaming yourself for falling short of whatever quasi arbitrary standards she's imposed on herself or whatever reasonable standards. Either way, you know, Elaine instead might practice asking herself, okay, is this going the way I want it to go or the way I need it to go? If not, why not? What's going wrong? What can I learn from this? What can I try to, you know, t- to change? What do, what can I do differently? Right? And just continuously coming back to that, take what I want and pay for it, perspective. And reimposing, kind of reasserting a tone of, look, it's for my sake. It's me I'm trying to help out here. This is the thing I want. Now, how do I get it? And it just sounds so different. And from both of these uh, mindsets, right? When we're in that kind of, and, and sort of listening to some of the best founders when they're at their best leading a standup or you know, talking to colleagues, or just talking to and about themselves. You, you hear that tone and you can emulate it and you can kind of learn to embody it in your own mental life. Okay, and so, and finally, when it comes to work, the builder is neither obsessive nor detached, but purposeful, meaning that he thinks in terms of cause and effect, and he welcomes whatever work is required to achieve the ends that he's after, while guiltlessly saying no to tasks that don't serve those valued ends. Okay, so a few points that I want to highlight here, because I found that they're, bless you, uh, that they're both game-changing and really hard to internalize for people, even those who've studied objectivism for years and take it very seriously. And they're really kind of distinguishing characteristics among the people that I have met who've been kind of the best, most successful founders when they're at their best. So the first theme is the focus on causality rather than duty. Okay, As Rand writes in her essay, By That Name, which I recommend if you haven't read, you read today. And if you've read it, reread it You know, on an annual basis. That's a categorical duty, and don't dare question it. <laughs> Caught that? OK. So she describes the psychological differences between a disciple of causation, ah, by which she means someone on that take what you want and pay for it premise, versus, nope, giving too much away, versus someone she refers to as a disciple of duty. Okay, so someone who, uh, quote, looks outward, who is, nope, sorry, 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 someone who is on some form of a Kantian esque duty premise. Okay, so here's what she says, among other things, but a really, really important psychological distinction that she's making between kind of how the, the, the kind of mental world of these two kinds of people. Operates. She says, a disciple of causation looks outward. He's value oriented and action oriented, which means reality oriented. A disciple of duty looks inward. He's self centered, which she goes on to elaborate in this context means self doubt centered, right? Not in the sense of, you know, what we might think, but the self. You're supposed to care about the self. It's your own life. But that's not actually what's going on, right? It's a focus on. Like, am I good enough? Am I meeting the right you know, criteria for being a, the kind of person that I'm supposed to be, right? He worries about his moral character, kind of at the cost of actually looking out at the world and deciding, okay, but like, what do I want? And is this making me happy? And what else could I be doing? And what is it gonna take for me to get from point A to point B? Okay. So with both Elaine and Adam, interestingly, we see this largely inward focus. In Elaine's case, it's a focus on judging her own worth and competence as a scientist and as a founder, evaluating her own character. For Adam, you know, it's more about how he's experiencing the moment and what he finds interesting, but neither of them is fully focused on tracking reality, right? Or specifically kind of thinking through the causal relationship between what they're doing now and what they aim to achieve. If they were, if they were on that premise of really caring about How do I get, you know, what do I actually want and how do I actually get it? Then they would be willing to do all kinds of unglamorous grunt work if it truly, if they could really see how it kind of moves them closer to their goal. And they wouldn't be willing to jump through meaningless hoops just because it's what people do, you know, or what others expect from them if they don't see the ultimate payoff. Okay, so even if you're doing the grunt work of setting up your lab space or Uh, jumping through legal hoops, as in Elaine's case, or you're waiting tables to pay for voice and acting lessons so that you can go on hundreds of auditions and eventually try to become an actor, You might get exhausted and need a break, but you don't burn out because you see these things as being in scope, as getting you closer to the thing that you can almost taste that you're so, so excited uh, to go and build, And this also has implications for how we approach failures and setbacks. Right? From a builder's perspective, discovering a fatal flaw in your experiment or realizing there's no market for your product, it does hurt, but it hurts in the way that a you know, missed opportunity hurts or you know, a wound that needs medical attention hurts, Right? not the way that a gun to your head hurts. Okay? And this is even true with really bad stuff. Like if you discover, oh my gosh, there's a bug in our software that puts users' privacy at risk and we may have already you know, jeopardized some of our users saying There could be major lawsuits you know, in our future interest. This is so bad. It should probably cause a pang of guilt, right? That then spurs you to action to warn your customers, to pull the product until you can figure out what happened and debug it, right? But all of this, we want it to be from a place of really wanting to deliver this experience and offer this value to our users, not from a place of fearing some divine judgment you know, or a punishment that will spite us, smite us, really either way, right? If you if we don't prove ourselves to be a good enough CEO or founder or whatever. Okay. And, uh, then, So moving on to the second key insight, that, which is the love and valorization of work as a distinctly human mode of value creation. because okay, Rand writes, through the voice of Ellis Wyatt and Alice Shrugged, there's no such thing as a lousy job, only lousy people who don't care to do it. And this is also echoed by Maria Montessori in a lot of her writings. She writes, all work is noble. The only ignoble thing is to live without working. Now, if you're one of those people who like me is prone to the drill sergeant mindset, you should take special care with any statement like this because it would be very easy to read this as a new intrinsic mandate. Or an existing one if you've encountered it before. Thou shalt work and thou shalt love it, else you be a you know a louse and an ignoble character. Ugh. So if you find yourself reading it that way, take a step back, bracket those moralistic judgments at least for a moment, at least long enough to just sort of think. Why are they saying this? Why do they say it's so valuable? Like, what is it that they're saying I have to gain? Like, what do I actually personally, like, what is the benefit of this perspective? And what work? You know, for what? For whom? Like, when? In what context? Because surely it can't be that I should just stop what I'm doing and go mop floors because then I'm working. Like, what is actually the kind of, you know, in the context of my life, like, what's true and useful here? Right? What do I want to take and what will it cost me? with respect to this perspective. And so my own understanding of this sentiment, which has become more and more a kind of central feature of my own kind of self-improvement over the years, it's, it's shining a light on a profound life-giving virtue, maybe the profound life-giving virtue, of applying our rational minds to the kind of purposeful activity of making something, of building something, of improving our own lives, of doing something that matters, even in the most seemingly kind of mundane context where we might just not think much of it, and we might sort of ignore it or neglect it or kind of feel about it the way that really either the drill sergeant or the Zen master might feel a kind of sense of detachment or indignation. Why do I have to do this work? Uh, Right? Whether it's making yourself a breakfast sandwich in the morning and kind of going about it in a thoughtful, intentional way, whether it's, you know, planning out your itinerary for your Ocon travels, right? Wide range of activities that can kind of fall under this heading, but that can serve for us as, as experiences that form this kind of accruing felt understanding of a fact, of a truth about the human condition, which is that this faculty, this ability that I have to apply my focused, reasoned effort, to getting something done, to achieving a goal, and to doing it you know, purposefully and well, that this is the key to everything. This is my superpower. This is how I'm going to get the most out of my life, not necessarily you know, my genius, or my youth, or my possession of these or those talents, or my way with words, all of which, if I possess that ability to work, to kind of apply myself with focused effort and concentration to doing the things that are important to do, then I'll figure out how to develop those other skills, or I'll find ways to compensate for the lack of them. But it's the working. That's the thing that opens up all the doors that I want open to me. Okay, so I just think this is so important, and I don't think that it automatically kind of flows out of the, the reading that we do on our first pass or even our 10th or 100th pass, you know, at our favorite RAND books. So I think it's just really worth some special attention. And then a corollary to these first two, which I also uh, wanna highlight, which is that you know, values are chosen and created, okay? They're not revealed to us from on high. Just like, and you may disagree with me on this, in which case that can be a separate conversation and a separate talk, but I don't think that there's a predetermined soulmate in the world for each of us. That's sort of like just out there waiting to be met and if we fail to meet them because you know they're on the opposite end of the world or just circumstances generally then well too bad we just can't have love in our lives like i i don't think that that's a real model of sort of how love works and nor do i think that it's true for our career for our life's purpose that there's like the one that's sort of written somewhere you know in the stars and the intrinsic scrolls you know of plato right a builder applies his effort and intelligence to taking the raw materials that are available to him and building something well-suited to his needs or the needs of those he's trading with, And if the raw materials change or the needs change, then the builder adjusts his aims and methods accordingly, right, and kind of keeps on building with that same one fundamental end, which is to live the fullest life, creating and enjoying values kind of within the scope of resources Uh, available and time available to him, right? So lots of examples that I really want to share, but I also want to get us to Q&A. So feel free to ask for inspiring examples should you care to uh, when we get to the Q&A. But also you all probably can think of some people who just like made massive swerves in their lives or ended up just doing something totally different than whatever they started with because of a disease or because of an economic downturn or because of a circumstance they were responding to that then actually led to a new and really meaningful, perhaps even more impactful, even more rewarding kind of life's purpose than whatever they had in mind initially. And you know, I think Steve Jobs is a great kind of exemplar of this. He got fired from his own company, so then he went, he did some stuff that didn't work out that well, at least initially with Next, and then he went made a total swerve and worked, you know, and went into the animation industry with you know, Pixar and then did amazing things there and then learned a bunch of skills that then served him really well when he came back to Apple, you know, which then kind of, he kind of took it to a new level. So really, really important to internalize. Um, I'm not gonna go into detail about these remaining slides because I've talked about each of these things in a bunch of other talks that you can find on YouTube. But I just want you all to be aware that there are tools for building ourselves <laughs> into builders. Now that I've kind of described the basic sketch, right, uh, the, the kind of picture of what we're going for, we can work at this. We can notice within ourselves a lot of those same kind of you know, thought-feeling action loops that we saw in Elaine and in Adam. Kind of like, do we find ourselves resenting work and feeling like this is such a dragon? And if so, well, what assumptions are driving that? Or do we think we shouldn't have to do this work because the outcome should just sort of be easy and automatic, or do we think we're only doing it because of somebody else imposing it on us? If so, why are we doing it? Is it true that it's imposed on us, or are we just used to feeling that way about anything we've committed to, right? And just kind of then noticing, like, what are some of the habitual ways of relating to our work and to ourselves in the world that kind of keep coming up, and can we name them, and can we dialogue with them? And when they show up, can we reassert the builder's mindset? And then developing our value blueprints again, I talk about this in um, using reason to cultivate passion. If you want to look it up, there's a lot of different places you can kind of find more of the particular tools and strategies here. But you know, just kind of noting that we learn about what we want. You know, take what you want in paper. Well, how do we know what we want? We we engage with the world. We try stuff. We talk to people. We put ourselves out there. Usually, we go beyond our comfort zone because if we want a better understanding of you know. What can we do? What is possible? What kind of life, you know, could we live? What should our purpose be? If we don't already know, that's probably because we haven't gone out and, and tested enough of the scenarios yet, or we haven't kind of got, gathered enough data from the world to form a robust vision. So kind of go and do stuff usually that, you know, scares us, makes us uncomfortable, but that's intriguing to us. You know, go talk to the people you've been afraid to talk to about the intriguing work that they do, etc. And it, I want to just make a kind of quick mention here that when we sort of observe, integrate, start to formulate articulations of like, here's what I want out of my life, here's what I'm building, here's what's important to me, like, we should be doing that at multiple levels of generality or abstraction and tracking our level of confidence with respect to each one. So for instance, you might be very certain at a general level that you wanna spend your life working on you know, intellectual problems with really smart people and sort of having lots of conversations, but, You may not know, or you may have a tentative hypothesis about whether like this particular graduate program or this particular company is gonna kind of be the right next step that allows you to achieve that broader vision, right? Uh, And so you can be a lot more flexible and quicker to iterate on the kind of more specific hypotheses. If if there's anything that sticks with you all from this talk, I I hope it's this. You know, I've talked about, I've kind of referred throughout to the fact that there's often this gap between our explicit philosophy and sort of like our internalized mindsets, habits, right? But knowing this, now you've gained a massive advantage, competitive advantage, if you will, over people who don't realize that this gap exists or just aren't thinking about it as consciously, because now you can much more intentionally commit to bridging that gap by kind of putting objectivism to work for you in training yourself into the builder's mindset in making real to yourself when you really need it like what are the quotes the scenes the characters for you that really jolt you back into the builder mindset when you get derailed by your particular brand of the drill sergeant or zen or some other mindset entirely right how do you keep those reminders kind of fresh and close at hand for yourself i used to have that quote about self-doubt and you know, being self-doubt-centered versus reality-centered on a sheet together with the, we never had to take it seriously, dialogue from Atlas and just a picture of Rand that I really loved. I would have that as the front kind of sheet back when we had physical notebooks and things, like the notebook I carried with me everywhere in college. And I would just stare at it every time I got caught up in you know, pointless rumination on my failings, and I would look and I would remember, and I needed that constellation of things to kind of get me back into, okay, what problem am I solving? What do I want to do next? So like, what is that for you? Build that for yourself, you know, have it on cups, have it on t-shirts, wherever you need it, have it in your phone, you know, whatever the modern equivalent of putting it at the you know front of the notebook. But like, customize your own objectivism diet. <laughs> uh, this I'm not gonna go into great detail on for sure, because there's a whole talk earning your own trust that kind of goes into this in detail, but just note that builders are lovers of reality, right? They're building a life in reality. And so reality is their best friend. And once we discard our particular flavor of drill sergeant, this actually becomes a lot easier because a lot of the kind of threat, a lot of the like things that are off limits to us as conclusions that we might draw or decisions we might make, it's just removed because if we actually decide in light of the evidence that maybe this is no longer the best idea or maybe we're not as you know as effective at being in this role or whatever it is or we don't want it anymore like great we can stop doing it or we can change strategy and there's nobody we have to answer to about the fact that oh it turns out that we're failures because who cares the point is this is our life and we want to make the most of it right so it actually the builder's mindset should be a resource for cultivating that self-honesty within ourselves. Lots of tools that I'm happy to answer questions about in our 15-minute Q&A that can help us deal with the, in, the, the kind of conflicting emotions that are going to keep coming up when we try to turn ourselves more and more consistently into builders. Okay, but the core messages that I want to impart here, you can ask me about these various you know, levers of influence, which again, I talk about in a lot of different places. But the core messages here are, feel your feelings which is counterintuitive because the feelings of you know unearned guilt and shame and kind of anxiety panic which we already know are false alarms like why would we feel those things when we you know why wouldn't we kind of ignore them suppress them well if only for the reason that it doesn't work it actually backfires the feelings just sort of come back stronger they end up having more power over us so feel them also because you want to know what they are so that you can diagnose them deal with them you know kind of re- reassert the right context and then do that. Zoom out. Reassert the builder's mindset. Remember what you know. Remember, kind of, you know, what what lines, what characters, what examples, in objectivism and in your own life and in the lives of people you know, kind of remind you that no, no, it's not about proving that I'm good enough. It's actually about deciding if this is the right project for me. It's actually about no. Let me go and ask the question. It's not. Nobody cares if I'm a fool, like. We, we're both in the business of trying to build this thing and it's better for me to know, it's better for me to ask. Right? So let me put the shame to the side. And keep building, keep acting in the world based on your considered judgment of what you actually know and what you actually want. And the feelings can sort of come along for the ride. And the best way it turns out to discredit the drill sergeant and the Zen master in the end is just to go and prove them wrong, Is right? to do the things. And our own minds, it you know, turns out they get convinced mainly through lived experience and not you know, ultimately through argumentation. So with that, I just wanna say that there's a lot of inspiration out there. Um, these are some of my current kind of members of the builders pantheon, but you, know, you can populate your own kind of you know, virtual wall of, uh, uh, of fame but just these are all people who lived very different lives and built very different things and they all struggled and they all had their versions of the drill sergeant, the Zen master, you know, internal and external to them. Right, you know, in one case, born into slavery and had to go and offer food to the white kids next door in exchange for reading lessons, right? And like, talk about an entrepreneurial spirit. I mean, we should just return to this guy Frederick Douglass in the middle here. If you don't know who I'm talking about, if we just if we ever need a morale boost and a reminder that our problems are solvable, and and that really there's no excuse with even with everything going on in the world to not go and earnestly build the life that we really want to build. Uh, feel free to ask in the Q&A if you want to. Learn of the strange story behind uh, this uh, image taken this morning, uh, and feel free to, take, uh, to check out my Substack, which is all about this—the building, uh, the builder's blog—and feel free. I'm just going to very quickly make the plug um, for—if you want to check out this beta version of a group coaching offering that focuses on the themes around becoming a builder, that's the website. So check out and feel free to ask more about it uh, in this portion of the program. (laughs) Thank you all very much.
0: So those of us who are objectivists, we, uh, well, I I don't wanna speak for everyone Mm -hmm. here, Mm -hmm. but um, we understand we understand explicitly the arguments against the duty mentality, and we understand explicitly the arguments against the stoic mentality, and we understand the egoist, we understand the egoist mentality. Yet, a, a lot of people raise their hands, including me, for all three mm-hmm. uh, yep. oscillation between, you know, those two false alternatives. Doesn't that mean something other than duty is actually the cause of these problems because otherwise why would we why would we end up in these false alternatives if the cause of the false alternative was some aspect of philosophy we already understood
1: Mm. I I mean in a way I think my whole framework here is an attempt not which is not to shame your question. It's an attempt to answer that question because it's a hard question to answer. And a lot of my professional work has centered on figuring out why. And my current working model suggests that we do still have these premises in us to some extent. And that when we understand that, you can understand something on a lot of kind of different levels and at different kind of depths and to different degrees of applicability, right? And I could say that, well, I understood the idea that I should be selfish 10 years ago, but I didn't understand it like I understand it now. And I probably don't understand it now the way I'll understand it in another 10 years. And I can specify a lot of the ways that I, you know, like a lot of things about it that were floating to me, like, okay, so I should be selfish, which means I should do what like will make me happy, which means I should go to the party and not necessarily like spend another hour on this homework, but wait, no, on the other hand, that's emotionalistic. So maybe I should, just focus on the work that matters to me but like how do i define that and and i still had all these implicit kind of assumptions around but it needs to be philosophical or you know it needs to be it, it, like productive in ways that were somewhat narrowly defined for me based on certain objectivist stereotypes so i didn't really understand like there were many questions i didn't even know i had yet about what it means to be selfish and i think that that's an ongoing pursuit that we've got to actively you know we've got to build understanding and it's an incremental process. I think, you know, there are just a few people in this room who I imagine like fully understand the set of things you listed. And I wouldn't even put myself among them. Like I'm still working on it. So I hope that that's some, some help.
0: Thanks. Sure.
2: We have a question from the online chat. Uh, Christoph asks, what does the inner dialogue of the builder mindset look like? Could you give an example of such an inner dialogue with respect to cases of failure or living with uncertainty and contrast it with the inner dialogue of the Zen master and the drill sergeant.
1: Good, good, yes, thank you for asking. So for the inner dialogue of the builder, that's where the examples are abundant. So I'm just gonna give, so I'm currently reading becoming Steve Jobs, which is the biography of Steve Jobs, which is a great source of some of that, of actually all three, interestingly, because he struggled with his own versions of the drill sergeant, definitely the Zen master. I mean, for those who've studied his biography, you know the years, the time spent in India and walking around barefoot and not using deodorant and thinking like it should—I know—and still, he, he, you know, it was a passionate and brilliant enough guy that like he managed to get people to invest in him while like, kind of plugging their noses. But the point is, he and then on the flip side like being really mean to people and thinking that that's actually what makes him efficacious at you know getting people to do their work and then like being ousted from his own company and having to grapple with the ways that his approach isn't actually working and so so there's a lot of that but then there's also just the essence the kind of the at at his heart he was a builder from day one so like he would do things like as a kid as a a dropout from college all, you know he drops out of college and he takes a calligraphy class. You know, listen to his Stanford lecture. That's one place you can hear a lot of good builder dialogue. Uh, his commencement address. But you know, he takes a calligraphy class. He, he decides, I'm just going to audit classes that are interesting to me and kind of see where that leads. And this calligraphy class inspires him to kind of really care about the aesthetics of like fonts and you know of written script, which is the reason that we now have the kind of range of you know beautiful and diverse fonts available to us on the you know the Mac and just like our, all of our lives are different because he kind of had that experience and digested it in a certain way. but also he would just like call up people in Silicon Valley who were like billionaires and at the time you know you just there, this is pre-internet and pre, Personal computer, right? So you like go and you meet with people or you give them a call, and he would just like talk to them and ask them for stuff. And just the fact that this nobody, this kid, this upstart is just willing to like prostrate himself, right, and say like, hey, so I think that you know my friend Waz, he seems really brilliant, and I think he could build a computer that people just like use in their homes. And what do you think about that? And do you think people would want that? And like people were impressed and inspired, if only just by his pluck, you know, and. There's a dialogue that, that kind of comes with that whole approach and just, and the ways he would hold himself accountable and the ways that you know he was both ruthlessly kind of after perfection and he connected the dots in retrospect and he tried not to dwell on the failures a moment longer than it took to learn from them and to kind of move on to the next step. So I think there's so much to be learned there. Um, read Frederick Douglass and Read the Fountainhead, but like really paying attention to like, what's Rourke actually thinking about when he's lying there in the grass, you know, in the quarry, like uncertain if he's ever going to get to build again. And he's sort of thinking about, yeah, like this hurts, but it only goes down to a certain point. And underneath that, like, you know, or, or the Stardard Temple when his masterpiece has just been completely butchered. Right. And he knows, the, you know, it, it's maimed and it's just this awful caricature of kind of what it used to be. And it hurts and it sucks and he takes measures to make sure it doesn't happen again. With the next commission, he writes into the contract that like you're not allowed to go and maim it, right? But somewhere underneath all that, there's still just the knowledge that I built it and that it existed and that it was beautiful, right? We have so much material at our disposal once we're reading it and kind of thinking about it, I think through this lens and thinking, well, how does that apply to me? How do I kind of take that and run with it? Sorry, okay, yeah, go ahead. Next question.
0: Okay. Uh, to what extent do you see this trichotomy reflected in the way people think about their romantic relationships?
1: Mm. That could be a whole nother talk. <laughs> um, <laughs> lots of ways. And I feel like that would be a really fun rabbit hole, but I guess briefly, I mean, if you kind of introspect, we, we see, again, well, I think what I mentioned about the kind of the one soulmate or about you know, there's like the correct way, or people who eschew dating apps, which I think now that's a, that's less and less a stigma because we all know a bunch of people who've met and have you know really successful loving relationships based on dating apps. But people who sort of have norms about, or have, Ugh, like it's dirty, it's gross, it's like it's not somehow the right way to, you know, I mean, people have all kinds of shoulds and mandates in their heads about every aspect of sex and romance, and and I think you know the biggest insight here is like. It's your life, it's your, you know, these are your relationships. Like Rand thought you know, polygamy was wrong and probably it doesn't work, but like think it through if that's something you're really tempted to do and see what, like, what are actually gonna be the long-term consequences and who needs to be on the same page with whom and how do I set this up, you know, kind of think fresh, think from first principles about every aspect of the life you're building. And that's at least as hard, if not harder to do in romance as, <laughs> as in other domains. But yeah, definitely comes up. Thank I you. mean, in the Zen masters everywhere, When it's like, oh, whatever, I don't get too attached. I mean, right? We, we've all known those guys and gals, but <laughs> sort of what hurts for whom?
2: <laughs> I have another question from online. Uh, Roby asks, what specific advice would you give to Adam? For example, if his company is failing and Adam is evading that fact through meditation, should he wake up, lay off his staff, and shut down High Chef?
1: That's a great question, and I don't know because I'm not Adam, right? So one of the things he might discover in doing some of the sort of hard-nosed, honest introspection and extrospection, i like, why, are, why isn't this working? Like, what's actually going on? How does this compare to what I was after? Like, One thing he might realize is, I didn't want to have to sell people. Obviously. Like, what I wanted and what I, the way I conceived of this you know, startup life is that I would just get to think about food and code. And I didn't consider that like, I would spend most of my time trying to convince people of stuff. Like that was the thing I was trying to get away from. Good to know, because then the last thing you wanna be doing is running a company, right? And so go do something like maybe find someone to replace you and just be an employee at your company. And then they will figure out a clever pivot and maybe actually start delivering some results or just you know, go work for uh, an established company that's already Kind of living your values, but where you can focus on, you know, kind of clever ways of combining food and technology. Right, there are lots of different ways, or pivot really fast and hard <laughs> to see if you can actually figure out a way to, you know, try to offer it to restaurants, to to event planners, to people who might actually want to use it and don't just assume that your kind of first target customer is the only target customer who might, you know, ever use your product. And, Like, there's a lot of stuff he could try if he actually really wants to build it, but that would be part of the question. Cool. Yes. Hi,
2: Gina, how are you? Oh, very good, thank you. Um, you. So two things. Uh, First, uh, you know, I want to just give a quick background about myself. I'm uh, an immigrant, I'm a physician. Uh, I practice in rural Delaware, and I primarily focus on concussions, brain injuries, and uh, uh, pain as well. And uh, I, I basically want to first take this opportunity to thank, thank uh, Gina for the, uh, uh, um, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, for the uh, amount that she has helped me over the past year and a half, and I cannot overstate the impact uh, she has had in my life uh, the past year and a half. Um, so I want to take this opportunity to thank you, Gina.
1: Thank you. Thank you, it's a very pleasure to get back.
2: Home. Uh, second, it was actually a question. Uh, I actually uh, uh, walked towards the mic before you finish the presentation, uh, but I'll kind of ask it anyway. <laughs> um, so I, I, you know, I came across objectivism many years ago um, and it was not that easy to Get into the idea of builder's mindset. It, will, it, it is, it is you know, difficult to identify. Even once you identify, it's difficult to integrate. It requires a lot of practice, mistakes, practice. Um, so I just wanted to ask what other resources are available aside from the talks and everything. But I think the slide before last pretty much captures it all. So I don't have any questions.
1: <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> thank There's you. There's the slide. Thank you for plugging it again. And thank you,
2: Harish, for the call out. A so shout out just okay. quickly say thank that, uh, uh, just a disclosure, uh, uh, no pharmaceutical company asked me to uh, give this feedback. <laughs> nice.
1: Thank you. Um, do we have. Nope. I'm sorry. So I'm around, and I'm around throughout the conference, so I hope to get to talk to you all. And thank you so much for engaging and for everything to me.
0: Thanks for listening to the Ayn Rand Institute Live podcast. Subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. You can also find us on YouTube. If you like this content, please share or leave us a review. For more information, go to aynrand.org.